0: It's actually a a series that's on Colossians and Philemon, uh, and there'll be one week on Philemon at the very end of the series. Uh, But today we find ourselves again in Colossians chapter three, as we heard the scripture reading this morning. This past uh, Friday, I had the chance to go to a farm. Uh, Rory, Andrea, and I went and visited a a park up in Bellevue that also has a farm attached to it. Uh, And there was a sign out front that said, quiet voices, quiet bodies. That's what the sign said as we walked in. And so I'm gonna be very careful around the sheep that I had a quiet voice and a quiet body. And I imagine that at some point in that farm's history, that there was probably somebody uh, who had a quiet voice, but not a quiet body uh, who was visiting the animals, which created quite a stir. And I'm sure it made many of the animals very nervous at that point. So another reminder for us uh, this morning uh, in that quiet voices, quiet bodies, uh, that our actions can be just as destructive as our words, and the tone that we use. In fact, uh, many have gone over uh, throughout the years the question whether or not uh, that old nursery rhyme about words would never hurt me if that's actually true, but I haven't heard as many people argue if sticks and stones actually break bones because I think we do know the truth to that. Uh, They do. Actions taken matter. How we conduct ourselves has consequences for our lives, but does it have consequences for the Christian community? That's the age-old question. Uh, Where does grace come in? How does does grace affect the way that we relate to one another? Can we just get a pass on the ways that we treat each other, knowing that we live in God's grace? Well, I don't think that's the case. Uh, We know that from news stories this past week. If you follow the news, you know that uh, Jerry Falwell Jr. is back in the news with a lawsuit uh, that he's brought against his former employer, employer, uh, Liberty University, in the lawsuit asking for or making claims about different damages that have been uh, caused as a result of his departure from the university. Uh, but you may recall that Falwell was originally uh, encouraged to resign from that Christian university because of questions or allegations about inappropriate personal conduct. And so we know then, even there, that there's, in a Christian university, the Christian community does have standards. There are, there are things that we set ourselves towards and there's, there's a sense that people are held accountable Nothing more disturbing on this front, though, than another story I read this last week about a 1974 cold case in Montana. Uh, It was solved uh, this past week, and they reported that the solution came through the use of DNA evidence. We know that there's been a number of cold cases that have been solved because of DNA evidence. And this particular one, the perpetrator, uh, a man named Richard William Davis, uh, who died back in 2012 at the age of 70, Uh, was traveling through the area when he committed this heinous crime it was an abduction and a murder and a terrible terrible thing I was stopped in my tracks when I read the story because the very end of that story has these words it says Davis's obituary so back in 2012 when he died described him as a loving husband father and grandfather it also said he was a born-again Christian who believed in the word of faith and he was ready to be with Jesus That was in stark contrast to the earlier part of the story about the actions that he had committed in his lifetime that seemingly those closest to him had no idea. Once again, it reminds us here that even though we are a people that are enfolded in grace, even though we are people that are recipients of God's grace, that little bit inside you that kind of goes cringes and says, that doesn't sound right. A born-again Christian? who's murdering people, a person in a high leadership role who's involved uh, allegedly in inappropriate conduct, they kind of, they eat at us and they tell us that that doesn't feel right, that doesn't seem right. And we're not alone in that. The idea that creeds don't match deeds is, is one that is accounted inside the scriptures and constantly people are invited back to a more consistent, a more faithful life. And the writer here in Colossians is going to take that same tact. The writer here, the Apostle Paul, is going to say in chapter 3 that he agrees that, indeed, conduct is important. And he goes a step forward to say, here's what it should look like. But before we go there into our text this morning, let's remember where we've been at in chapter 3 already. We know that the faithful were instructed at the very beginning of the chapter to seek the things that are above and to set their, their minds on things above. That pursuit, of course, is rooted uh, in having died and our life now being hidden with Christ. And so uh, these are important things as language of uh, revelation is enjoined with language of resurrection. And so those two come together. If you've been raised with Christ, being with Christ brings new life, it brings a new self, is what Paul's going to talk about here. You can say Jesus being the one who makes all things new, and so including our very lives. And we know that something new always presupposes that there was something old right you can't have something new unless there was something old there previously and paul identifies the old self we heard this last week with pastor john as he was preaching uh, that there's all kinds of things in life vices that we are participating in our old life or we might call hang-ups in the old life but for the christ follower these things in verse 5 of chapter 3 were to be put to death verse 9 they would be stripped off and although they represent the way once followed as we hear in verse 7 uh, the Christ community goes another way. We're not only made new in Christ, we're actually called and recreated to live differently in life. What's more, and we see this just before we go into our text this morning, those boundaries that, of old that we used to divide ourselves with are no longer defining structures, uh, social status, uh, ethnicity, even religious background. You talk about uh, Jew and, and Greek here. Instead, as those who are in Christ Paul identifies this church at Colossae as chosen ones uh, using language of holy and beloved. That's not mere flattery. Uh, Rather, this is a motif that runs through the Hebrew Bible. Uh, We see this idea of the ones who are chosen are holy and beloved by God. Note that interplay in Deuteronomy chapter seven kind of talks on the same themes. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on earth to be his people, his treasured possession. It was not because you were more numerous than any other people that the Lord set his heart on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. And that's Deuteronomy chapter seven, reading verses six and seven. So here are those categories, these ideas of coming together, ones who are chosen, uh, ones who are holy and beloved uh, in that chosen place that God creates us into this new type of identity, that those people, so you think about In Colossians, these Gentiles, this Gentile church, are now associated with these people in Scripture, the holy people of Israel. They're the new Israel, and they're called to be something special, something important. We might say in our own language that like the nation of old, the Christian community is chosen, elected to salvation, and now charged, elected to service, to a particular way of life. They are to conduct themselves and we are to conduct ourselves in particular ways. Which brings us to our text this morning. That was quite the run-up to our text, was it not? I think we now understand the first part of chapter 3 very well. Here's how we, then we are to live. The vices that were earlier in the chapter are now countered with these virtues. Here's how the church is to be. We're to be a church that's known by compassion. A people of compassion. That's the first virtue that Paul outlines here. The King James Version does a more literal re- rendering here of the Greek. It actually says, bowels of mercy, or bowels of mercies is what, what it reads in the King James. You might uh, actually hear that if you hear bowels, you're like, oh, that's, what's, what's that mean? Think of entrails of mercy. That's where the Greek's going with this. In ancient thinking, the bowels were associated with the emotions, especially love. And so here, the idea is that we would be a people of compassion, we'd have deep, heartfelt feelings. Uh, that this would be this idea of our love and and kindness to one another, that those pieces would be deeply rooted in us, uh, deeply felt, it'd be deeply seated uh, for us. And we use, like I said, heartfelt. We use the idea of heart. The ancients would have used the idea of bowels for the same thing. The second one is this, the virtue is this. With compassion, we also have kindness. That's how we relate to each other. It's excellence in the character that we display and also the demeanor uh, by which we display that character to each other. Humility is the third one on the list for the virtues that we are to possess as a, as a church, or the people we're to be. Uh, and unlike in uh, chapter 2, verses 18 and 23, where this, the same word is used uh, as far as humility in religious practices or things to garner some kind of esteem or reputation in the, the community, kind of what we call false humility, here Paul imagines a humility that's rooted within Christ's own humility. So remember the whole descriptions that we see in Christ earlier in Colossians. But think back to Philippians chapter two, if you're familiar with that text, of how Christ is this one uh, who sets aside uh, even the, the huge categories of deity and being God and sets those aside to take on the form of human likeness. That that sets and shapes uh, the type of humility that we're to possess as a church. Jesus here is our model. And so there's a repositioning of self in this, uh, that we become uh, self-sacrificial in the way that we serve others. It's not, it wasn't a popular virtue then, it's not a popular virtue now. In fact, the ancients associated this with servility and cowardice. Uh, and even in our own day, humility is sometimes thought as, it'd be lovely to see someone who had that, but I'm not sure I want to be the person who has that. Uh, when we think about the business world and how we get ahead in this world, uh, oftentimes humility is not the virtue that's seen there. But the church is to live a different way. We're to be ones who uh, not only possess humility, we're supposed to be exemplifying that and demonstrating that in our lives. The fourth one is this. So we add to compassion, kindness, humility. We now add meekness. And meekness here uh, also translates other ways as gentleness, if that helps uh, understand that word. The common lectionary that's oftentimes used for the Greek New Testament when folks are studying Greek uh, states this about gentleness. It says that the quality of not being overly impressed by a sense of one's self-importance. That's gentleness. We don't go around being impressed by ourselves. Uh, we go around again as that those folks who who recognize uh, who we are, really recognize who we are. That's not just, that's not somehow facing ourselves and saying, hey, we're we're nothing. We're something, we're beloved by God. But it's not exalting ourselves to a higher place as we treat and as we conduct ourselves in community. There's a sense here uh, as we're moving along uh, in these different pieces that Uh, the feelings about these virtues are and I had this as I was going through this list and studying each one of these these words here uh, I I just wondered how how many of these show up um, in the church when we think about our own mission statements Uh, many church mission statements don't get into this kind of detail but here Paul is outlining for us really who the church is to be and so why would that not be why would that not be part of that type of statement but going on here, N.T. Wright talks about meekness this way. He actually identifies this quality when he writes about it in his commentary. He says, the positive and negative outworkings of kindness and humility. Uh, this particular one is gentleness, or here meekness, is the effect of meek humility on one's approach to other people. So how we approach other people. He understands this quality as abandoning rudeness and arrogance are the words that he uses here. But then he goes on to say patience here. So here's what N.T. Wright says about patience. He says, whereas patience, is the effect of that humble kindness on one's reaction to other people. So not the approach to them, but how we react to what uh, people are doing and how they're treating us here in the, in the church, in the life of the community. What is abandoned here, according to Wright? Resentment and anger. And so five, five virtues here uh, for us, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. It's quite a list, and it stands as quite a contrast to the vices uh, that are described and found elsewhere, uh, not only in Colossians, but throughout the scriptures. But note this, uh, each of these qualities actually are qualities that show up throughout the Hebrew Bible when talking about God and in the New Testament talking about God, but also when we talk about Jesus as we read the gospels. We see each of these qualities exemplified in God and Jesus. These are grace revealers. So if you ever wondered what it, was, what it meant to be one who reveals God's grace, which has been how we've identified ourselves as a congregation, we wanna be ones who reveal God's grace. If you wanna know what that looks like, here's what it looks like. It looks like a church that's defined by compassion and kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. And when we do, and I I love the term that Chris Peterson used to use when he talked about, when he was coaching the Huskies, and he talked about OKGs, our, our kind of guys. They're working for a certain type of person to play on their football team. I thought about this what if we had gkps god's kind of people if we were god's kind of people if we were living that kind of life uh this is what that would look like this is what would be revealed here at john knox when we're at our best we'd see what verse 13 talks about we'd be bearing with one another not being bears towards one another right? that's a different quality but we'd be bearing with each other forbearance this idea of enduring with one another Uh, there's a sense that we can do that because christ endured for us we can we can endure with each other closely related to this is forgiving we see this also in verse 13 we forgive each other what's the model for this well verse 13 plays that out we're to forgive the same way that christ has forgiven us the experience of forgiveness that we experience which is great and grand and huge we'd extend that to those in the community as well in verse 14 we're to clothe ourselves with love. That's how we'd be defined as a community. We would be ones who clothe ourselves with love. And the way that this is worded here uh, in, in the text, it's worded as this is the supreme virtue. Take all the five virtues. This is the one that bundles them together. Uh, we bundle them together here with love. Uh, and, and what it does here is it, it not only bundles those virtues together, it binds us together as a community. As a community that expresses love through these different areas, we become a people that are unified And you can see that, the community that bears with one another, a community that forgives, is a community that is expressing love in its greatest ways. And as that happens, that community is far more resilient than the community that I naturally want to come up with. So inspired by this idea of clothing uh, oneself, I asked our church staff this past week uh, to think of a story in their own life uh, where they dressed for success, where they wore a specific outfit, uh, hoping that there'd be a positive outcome in wearing that outfit. And of course, uh, as people shared, and I'm sure as stories you think about your own life and different stories that you might have, uh, job interviews, trying out for a sports team, you might wear your lucky socks or something like that. Uh, You're giving a presentation in school, uh, you dress a certain way because you know you'll be up in front of the classroom. Um, Whatever that might be, you you dress for that that moment. You dress hopefully that that's part of what you're saying that people would see that and think, okay, that person has it all together, Uh, they're ready to go. I still remember, and I shared with the staff, the outfit I wore my first day of seventh grade um, with hopes that I would be received by my classmates. Still to this day, I remember that jean jacket and that Max Headroom T-shirt. If you know who Max Headroom is, you know that's a very dated illustration. (laughs) What would it look like if we put as much attention to the clothing ourselves with the things that Paul says clothe ourselves with, the virtues? What would it mean for us as a church? Imagine who we might become if we gave attention to that. Mark Twain uh, once quipped that clothes make the man. Naked people have little or no influence on society. Clothing ourselves with virtues like, uh, like these, we clothe ourselves with love. It makes the church. And the right clothing will make a lasting and positive impression on other people, not to mention how things might look, how things might look different here. Imagine what a budget conversation looks like in a congregation where these virtues are the defining pieces. Imagine what a committee meeting looks like. Just imagine what it looks like for parking lot conversations, how those might change and be transformed if this is what we were defined by. Or even the priorities and the mission of the church, how that looks different. Or how friendship, how we engage in friendship with one another, how that looks different. Perhaps different here is the wrong word. Perhaps I'm using the wrong word here in this Uh, maybe they just end up looking the way they're supposed to. It's not different at all. Maybe the way we live normally is actually the thing that's so different. Well, last week we celebrated Reformed uh, Reformation Sunday, a day in which uh, we are reminded of the distinctives of our particular tradition and some of the history that uh, is brought in with those distinctives. But this week we celebrate All Saints Day, and I don't know if you had a chance to, to visit Twitter this morning, I actually I visited Twitter I to tell you a little bit of my Sunday practices. Um, did you see what the Pope tweeted this morning? The Pope wrote this choosing purity, meekness, and mercy, choosing to entrust oneself to the Lord in poverty of spirit and in affliction, dedicating oneself to justice and peace, this means going against the current. This evangelical path was trodden by hashtag all the saints and the blesseds. That sounds an awful lot like clothing oneself with virtues. That sounds a lot like conduct being important to the Christian faith. But how do we get there? How do we get to that place where we can live into those virtues and, and exemplify those virtues? Well, the text offers a couple things here for us uh, to consider are several places. Uh, the first one is this, in verse 15, we're to let the peace of Christ rule, to rule. Grace and peace was how Paul started out Colossians. For the peace of Christ to rule, the, the word there, is this key blessing of the Christian life, this peace, is to be the umpire. It's to be the umpire in our lives is how that word functions in the Greek. Uh, there's a sense that the peace that's secured for us in Christ uh, is, a, is, is lived out. It's the thing that's shaping us and calling the shots for us in our lives. Um, you know, if, you are, if, you're watching, if you're watching this right now, I'm going to pause right here. There's a dog barking in the building, it sounds like. So I'm just going to pause for a second. You're wondering if you're watching, you think this is very strange. It is very strange, it's not an illustration. Can one of you guys check that, check that out? Yeah. Okay. It sounded like a dog was barking just outside the sanctuary. All right, we'll come back here. It's, Otis. it's not Otis. So the peace of Christ serves as this umpire for us. This peace is, is calling these shots for us. And it's, it's a sense that that peace is at a heartfelt place for us again. It's deep seated, it is purposeful. It's consistent in our lives. We as an individual and as a corporate body live into that calling uh, to be ones who are shaped by that peace. That's ruling not only in our own hearts, but in our collective heart as a community. The second one, this is grateful. I love the uh, attitude, uh, uh, attitude of gratitude that Captain Linda talked about. And in that sense, uh, there's a sense that uh, as people who are grateful and thankful, That it's easier for us and we know this in life as grateful people it's a lot easier to live into virtue than it is uh, if we're ungrateful we oftentimes go to vice and so for us to to see ourselves and to recognize what we've received in christ uh, as we think about chapters one and two of colossians and to be people who live into that place of gratitude and the third one is this is the word of christ to dwell what paul's talking about here he's not talking necessarily about the bible we talk about the word of God, and we use that language. We talk about scripture. We use that rightly. Uh, but here, the word of Christ, remember what he has already said about who Jesus is. He's talking about this, this messianic message, or who Christ is. To let that message dwell deeply and centrally in the church. To allow that to be in our community, but also in us individually. And when it does, it not only shapes our worship, it shapes our lives, and it goes on to shape our very community. To see those three things, peace of Christ to rule, to be a people who are grateful, and to let the word of Christ dwell. Let me say these words, and this will be a pastoral message here. Tuesday is going to be a test of all these. Tuesday will be a test for us as God's people. We know as a nation that we go into Tuesday with the vote, and we hear the election results, or we start hearing the, the first results coming from the election. It's going to be a test for us. And if social media is any indicator of how we're doing so far on the test, it's very difficult for many, many people in our community. Many people within the church are struggling with us. I saw two friends actually going at it on Facebook this last week, so much so that they repelled each other uh, and, and one dismissed the other to say you're out uh, as far as a friend over this election. So Tuesday will be a test for us. It doesn't have to be one that breaks us. Come back on Tuesday to Colossians chapter 3 and be reminded of what God calls us to. God doesn't call us to battle lines, doesn't call us to ideologies that separate and divide, but calls us to some real virtues that are bound together by love. And calls calls us to a place to be uh, ones who exemplify peace, to be a grateful people of worship, and be ones who allow the word of Christ, this message of hope in Jesus Christ, to permeate and live in and through our entire community. I Shared a few weeks back, and I'll close with this, that I've been spending a lot of time uh, reading children's books of late. Uh, some books I read multiple times in the same day, the same book. There's one that I particularly enjoyed reading at home, uh, one that you may have heard that's, um, that's really has inspired actually imaginative action in our household. It's a story of Miss Rumpheus, I don't know if you've heard this story. It's by Barbara Cooney. Uh, And early in the story, Miss Rumpfee is a little girl, and she's seated on her grandfather's knee, and he's he's sharing stories about his adventures to faraway places. And she states, uh, after she hears these stories, when I grow up, I, too, will go to faraway places, and when I grow old, I, too, will live beside the sea, because he's got his home here on the sea. Her grandfather assures her that that is all fine and good, but that there is actually a third thing she must do, and of course, this young Miss Rompheus, whose name's Alice, she asks, what is that? What is the third thing that I must do? I mean, house by the sea, how could, what more could you want? Her grandfather offers this. You must do something to make the world more beautiful. You must do something to make the world more beautiful. And the rest of the book is the story of how Miss Rompheus discovers what that is and how she goes on to live into that. Friends, as the blessed community that's called by a loving Savior into that community, we're called to be a people of compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. We're called to forgive one another. We're bound together, and all these things are bound together by love. So let the peace of Christ rule. Be grateful and allow the word of Christ to dwell in you. And as we do we too will make the world beautiful. Maybe so in our generation. Amen.